Hello, friends, and welcome to our Saturday, our SPT Sutra Studies class. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin our class, let's take a moment to appreciate our handsome community gathered here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing the present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome to our SPT Sutra Studies class. We are currently examining the Dhammapada. Today we will be covering chapter 25 entitled the Bhikkhu. Before we start, I wanted to talk a little bit about the title and about the next title. So um, as many of you know, we're uh, going to be finishing the Dhammapada this weekend. Uh, we're doing chapter 25 today, and tomorrow on Sunday's teaching, we're going to finish with chapter 26. The title of this chapter is Bhikkhu, which is mostly understood as monk. Uh, Bhikkhu, Bhikshu in, in uh, Sanskrit, Gelong uh, in Tibetan. Uh, and then in our next chapter, we have the term Brahman. Now, Brahmin is a little confusing because Brahmin usually refers to uh, Hinduism and in two ways. One, it, it, uh, it pertains to the highest of the caste system, the, the Brahmin caste, but it also comes from Brahminism. And they usually pronounce it a little different. They'll say Brahminism, which is the, uh, the precursor to modern Hinduism was the ancient tradition of Brahmaism. And, uh, but in this case, uh, Brahmanism is referring to a very high accomplished practitioner. And the Buddha would often use the word Brahman when, when talking to uh, people of the Brahman tradition, in a sense, using their own language to explain. And, you know, they, they're, for a, for a Buddhist, the highest accomplishment is the, uh, is the Arhat. For the Hinduism or Brahmanism, it would be the Brahman. But the Buddha would say, would speak to them in their language and say, oh, the Brahman, this high practitioner would be this, 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 and this. So oftentimes, He'd use the word Brahman, actually meaning Arhat in our own tradition. So that's a little confusing. I think we can look at it just as a general term for a very high spiritual practitioner. But clearly in this case, it's someone who's walking the Buddhist path. 
Okay, so we'll talk about that a little uh, little later. Um, and we have some great readers here today. And without further ado, why don't we get into it? So let me put this up on the screen for everybody to see. And um, where am I? I think I'm over here. Okay. And as you can see in Gaden Chappelle's presentation of this text, um, he's, I think I'll move this over, yeah. He actually uses the word monk instead of bhikshu at the top of his. Let's see what the other ones do. Yeah, Buddha Rakita does the same. And then here, um, Gil Fransdale uses bhikkhu. And that's perfectly fine. But yeah, they all kind of pertain to monk. Now, in our secular capacity, let's let's not say monk. Let's I, I I like to use the term excellent practitioner, right? Because it's not just monastics that these qualities are true. The qualities that we're going to talk about here are true of any excellent practitioner of the Buddha's teaching. Originally, the Buddha talked about having four types of practitioner the uh the lay man the lay woman the monastic man or monk and the monastic woman or nun those were the four types of practitioners according to the buddha and he he considered them to be all equal now monastics might as you can probably imagine might put a little bit more emphasis on under their practice instead of uh, uh, instead of just general household life. But nevertheless, in, in multiple sutras, the Buddha calls them all equal. And of course, they all have an equal capacity for attaining enlightenment. But um, clearly, the monastics are on a fast track to get there. But nevertheless, they are all equal. Uh, the next two chapters are both quite lengthy. The good news is that they really don't require much commentary. They're very straight at, straightforward. They're also wonderful. I thought they were both excellent. What a great way to end the Dharmapada. What they're doing is something that SBT does. SBT, you know, we're, we're so strongly into training with SBT, and which means uh, holding vows, whether the refuge, bodhisattva, lay ordination, monastic ordination, the idea is our vows paint a picture and illustrate what an awakened being is. And what that does is it gives us such clarity into our direction and our daily behavior. So this is, this is the great part of the path. When you train in awakened behavior and awakened conduct, this is the fastest way to enlightenment. Of course, Buddhism is holistic. So it's not one thing never covers the path. You know, the, we have to do them all. But training is really important. You know, we also have to meditate. We have to study. All these things go together. So uh, that's what these last two chapters do. They really paint a picture, first, of what a monastic is. And then secondly, what the uh what an enlightened being is so i had to kind of read through quite a few times to really understand the difference between the monk and and the next chapter of the brahmin in a sense uh i believe it's that the monk is a person on the path 
and they're going to talk about those qualities. But the next chapter is going to be the next level of an awakened being. Now, they share so many qualities, it's hard to understand the difference. I remember a beautiful analogy. What was it? It was that the difference between a Bodhisattva and a Buddha, or let's just say an excellent practitioner and awakened being. Uh, an excellent an excellent practitioner, their wisdom, their qualities are like a hoof print full of water. And this is a Tibetan analogy. Whereas an awakened being, their qualities are like the ocean. So very much the same qualities, right? The, the hoof print full of water is a body of water that's contained, but you can't compare the extent and uh, the vastness of the two. With that said, why don't we get started? Um, so we have some fabulous readers here among us. And um, I think I marked off a couple of these. Yeah, so we're going to first read from 360 to 363. Jennifer, would you like to get us started? And I'll help you through these. Sure. It is wise to restrain your eyes, to restrain your ears. It is wise to restrain your nose, to restrain your tongue. It is wise to restrain your body, to restrain your speech, to restrain your mind, to restrain yourself in everything. The monk who is always self-restrained is free from all suffering. The one who has true self-restraint, self who restrains his hands and feet, who restrains his feet, the one who has inner joy and balance and is content in solitude, this one is called a monk. A monk who restrains his tongue, whose speech is timely and never proud, a monk is one whose words are sweet, who illuminates the Dharma and its aims. Thank you. Jen, we can hear you, but it's a little bit muffled. Can you speak into your microphone maybe? Or maybe there's something you can do to get a little clearer. Thank you. We can hear you though, it's okay. Um, Karma, would you like to read? Well, let me make sure I get all these numbers right. We're going to read through 263. So 260 to 263. Good is restraint over the eye. Good is restraint over the ear. Good is restraint over the nose. Good is restraint over the tongue. Good is restraint in the body. Good is restraint in speech. Good is restraint in thought. Restraint everywhere is good. The monk restrained in every way is freed from all suffering. He who has control over his hands, feet, and tongue, who is fully controlled, delights inward development, is absorbed in meditation, keeps to himself, and is contented. Him do people call a monk. That monk what? who... Sorry. That monk who has control over his tongue is moderate in speech, assuming and who explains the teaching in both letter and spirit. Whatever he says is pleasing. Great. And that's unassuming. Oh, no problem. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Little different meaning. <laughs> and Tom, would you like to read uh, uh, 360 to 363? Restraint of the eye is good. Good is restraint of the ear. Restraint of the nose is good. Good is restraint of the tongue. Restraint of the body is good. Good is restraint of speech. 
restraint of the mind is good. Good is restraint in all circumstances. Restrained in all circumstances, the bhikkhu is released from all suffering. The one with hands restrained, feet restrained, speech restrained, is foremost among the restrained, inwardly delighted, composed, solitary, and contented, is called a bhikkhu. Sweet is the speech of a bhikkhu who restrains his mouth, speaks insightfully, is not conceited, and illuminates the teaching and the goal. Thank you. And so, as you can see, most of these are self-explanatory. The one thing I would like to talk about is the idea of restraint. So, in some chapters of the uh, sutras, especially those related specifically to monks, they they have a presentation that it, that seems quite uh, dogmatic, and they talk about just cutting off all all any uh, any or just abandoning the senses of uh, completely of any kind of sense pleasure. It's very very dogmatic, very strong. But I don't believe that that's the uh, the the true meaning of it. As you read through the sutra, and the, you know there are places where, of course. We, we can have uh, virtuous uh, sense pleasures. You know, imagine sitting in front of the Buddha listening to him speak. What, how, what pleasure that would be to the eyes, to the ears. So, um, you know, hearing the teachings or sitting with, with close friends and delighting in the presence of spiritual friends. Of course, we're, we can have uh, very virtuous sense experiences. So here, um, when they're talking about restraint, they're just talking about having control, uh, some element of control. And I would like to point out that you can you can understand this in in our practice of the four steps of acceptance, where when when we have a challenge, the first thing we do is we become present, we become more objective. And again, the word patience come in, comes in. And patience in the Buddhist sense of the world, not meaning kind of trying to tolerate something, but patience is more of a form of non-reaction in Buddhism. They often say to become a block of wood, just no reaction of any kind. So when we talk about patience in Buddhism, we're talking about non, talking about not having overreaction, over emotional reaction to things, you know, learning how to be self-controlled. Here the word is restraint, right? It doesn't mean not responding. It doesn't mean not sharing these qualities. It just means being mindful and being controlled in it so we don't behave inappropriately. So that's really important when we say restraint. Uh, but there are some chapters or some verses in the sutras that kind of paint a picture. I think sometimes it's more in the Mahayana sutras that they paint a picture of just, you know, we want to just abandon all sense, uh, sense, uh, senses. And I think that that's an incorrect way of understanding it. We're always trying to understand the difference between exaggerated experience and non-exaggerated experience, truthful experience, right? We want to, we want to know the difference between uh, 
grasping at these sense, sense pleasures or experiencing the sense pleasures. So I wanted to say that. The only other thing I wanted to share was, uh, I understand a lot of these, but the one that was surprising to me, if I see if I can find it here, it was, yeah, this is it. Who remains, who restrains his hands and his feet and his tongue? Now, hands and feet, I understand restraining, right? The hands can be naughty, right? But I don't understand restraining our feet. Does anybody get that one? Does that mean not tapping your toe or? That's a strange one. Okay, enough of my silliness. Let's move on. Um, let's read 364 through 368. There's four of them to hear. Tom, would you like to start us off 364? The monk who lives by the Dharma rejoices in the dharma, aspires to the dharma, is mindful of the dharma, will never fall away from the holy dharma. The monk should not be vain of his own success or be obsessed with the success of others. The monk who is obsessed by another's gain will never attain samadhi. A monk who gains a little but does not boast of what he gains a monk whose life is pure and undisturbed is praised by the gods. The one who has no thoughts of I or mine towards any name or form, who is never unhappy in doing without, such a man is called a monk. The monk who lives in loving kindness and clear vision of the Buddhist teachings whose karmic propensities have been stilled, obtains the highest happiness. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. Let me make sure I have my numbers right. 364 to 368. In general, would you like to read that? 364 through 368. The monk who abides in the Dharma, delights in the Dharma, meditates on the Dharma, and bears the Dharma well in mind. He does not fall away from the sublime dharma. One should not despise what one has received, nor envy the gains of others. The monk who envies the gains of others does not attain to meditative absorption. A monk who does not despise what he has received, even though it be little, who is pure in livelihood and unremitting in effort, him even the gods praise. He who has no attachment whatsoever for the mind and body, who does not grieve for what he has not, he is truly called a monk. The monk who abides in universal love and is deeply devoted to the teachings of the Buddha, attains the peace of nirvana, the bliss of cessation of all conditioned beings. Oh, it's so pretty, huh? And karma, how would you like to read? 364 to 368. The bhikkhu who dwells in the dharma, delights in the dharma, reflects on the dharma, recollects the dharma, doesn't fall away from the true dharma. One shouldn't scorn what one has received, nor envy others. The mendicant who envies others doesn't become concentrated. The gods praise the mendicant who lives purely and untiringly, and who doesn't scorn what he or she receives, even if receiving just a little. 
anyone who doesn't cherish as mine anything of body and mind and who doesn't grieve for that which doesn't exist is indeed called a bhikkhu. A bhikkhu dwelling on loving kindness and pleased with Buddha's teachings attains happiness, the stilling of formations, the state of peace. A couple of terms I have in this one. One is mendicant, and that's a, a renunciant. Usually you think of a mendicant as somebody that moves away into the forest and just practices, but mendicant uh, can be thought of as a monk as well. And then in this last uh, verse here, I was looking for this forever before I couldn't find it. The word formations, this is mental formations, and this is part of our, uh, this is part of our, of our, um, oh, I cannot multitask, can I? I can't speak and do this at the same time. It's part of our five aggregates. And we have the, we have form, let me, there we go, form, feeling, perception, mental formations. And this is a, a very broad term. The aspect of the mind responsible for concepts, thinking, intentions, and volitions. And um, so a lot of our, well, I think what you would consider to be your free will, your choices, this is kind of the active part of the mind, right? Mental formations. So in, uh, in, this, uh, in this account, uh, they talk about attains happiness through stilling of formations. I think maybe it's also okay to say mental formations is kind of like the mind aspect. You know, the, the mind that keeps interfering with your meditation, the mind that keeps wanting you to go get cheeseburgers instead of staying on your diet. You know, that kind of naughty mind of ours. That's what that... We would just want to still that kind of our part of our mind, and in doing so, we get a great state of peace. I think the rest of it's a pretty self-explanatory. I just love the language, the bhikkhu dwelling in loving kindness and pleased with the Buddha's teachings attains happiness, the stilling of formations, and the state of peace. So in this case, it's saying that if uh, if we dwell in loving kindness, if we practice that and we uh, understand and we're happy in the Buddhist teachings, that that will still our mental formations. So uh, I think that that's really pretty. Okay, let's move on. We have two, uh, 369 through, this is a long one, oh, through 376. So, Karma, would you like to start us off here at 369? O monks, empty the boat. When it is empty, you will quickly reach your destination. Throw overboard all attachment and hatred, and you will obtain nirvana. Cut away the five hindrances, cast off the five longings, develop the five virtues. Monks who transcend the five obstructions are called those who have crossed the waves. Monks meditate and be vigilant. Do not let the mind's demands delude you. Do not swallow the burning iron ball of your mistakes that will cause you to scream in agony. Without wisdom, there is no meditation. Without meditation, there is no wisdom. Whoever is endowed with both meditation and wisdom abides very near to nirvana. A monk of peaceful mind abiding in an empty house beholds the true dharma and his joy transcends all mortal joy. 
Whoever investigates the arising and destruction of the elements of body and mind, and from what they arise will obtain delight and joy. This is the ambrosia of the wise. To gain the wisdom, a monk must begin to lead a pure life and never be lazy. He must guard the senses and be content, be true to the rule of liberation, and rely on spiritual friends to virtue of virtue. Perfect in all action, virtue permeating all he does, the monk has many joys and puts an end to suffering. Thank you. You read that beautifully. You know, we were talking about restraining the senses before. I think that this is a pretty way to say it, to just guard the senses. And that just means be careful, you know, be careful of, of the content, especially, right? And that means, you know, what, you, what kind of media you're taking in, what kind of what kind of conversations you're having with people, you know, don't, don't take in a negativity or, or non-virtue. You know, don't get into gossiping with neighbors. Don't view non-virtuous material on your in your media and you know news that you don't need to hear. That kind of thing. But that I think that's a pretty a much prettier way to say that. I want to peek at the numbers one time. Uh, three sixty nine. Tom, would you like to start at three sixty nine and read through? Empty disposal, monk. Emptied, it will sail lightly. Rid of lust and hatred, we shall reach Nibbana. Cut off the five, abandon the five, and cultivate the five. The monk who has overcome the five bonds is called one who has crossed the flood. Meditate, O monk. Do not be heedless. Let, night, let not your mind whirl on sensual pleasures. Heedless, do not swallow a red-hot iron ball, lest you cry when burning, or oh, this is painful. There is no meditative concentration for him who lacks insight, and no insight for him who lacks meditative concentration. He in whom are found both meditative concentration and insight, indeed, is close to Nibbana. One second, Tom. Let's figure out what we're going to. We're going to be going to 376, so please continue. The monk who has retired to a solitary abode and calmed his mind, who comprehends the Dhamma with insight, in him there arises a delight that transcends all human delights. Whenever he sees with insight the rise and fall of the aggregates, he is full of joy and happiness. To the discerning one, respects the deathless. Control of the senses, contentment, restrain according to the code of monastic discipline. These form the basis of holy life here for the wise monk. Let him associate with friends who are noble, energetic and pure in life. Let him be cordial and refined in conduct. Thus, full of joy, he will make an end to suffering. Thank you. And I think I'll take just a second before we read the next one to uh, look at some of the notes. So when they, they talk about the, uh, 
Well, they talk about the five, this, the five, that. Buddhism is often called the religion of numbers. There's so many lists of things. And, oh, here it is. To cut off the five, abandon the five, cultivate the five. They're listed right here. The five to be cut off are the five lower fetters. If you remember in our studies, we had... Um, we studied the ten fetters uh, before. Why can I never see this? Oh, there it is. And um, I have them here for you, if I can get to them. These are the ten fetters. We have the five lower and the five upper. And you could just read through those for yourselves. In case you're interested. And then we have um, and then we have the oh I'm trying to get to the next hearts the last five okay so uh, the you know in Theravada Buddhism they they talk about success in the in the path as being in four levels stream enter once returned non-returner and arhats. Now, it's important to remember that stream enterer isn't somebody that's just starting the path. It's actually a very high accomplishment. It's actually a taste of nirvana. So chances are none of us are stream enterers yet. Um, and then once returner means that um, you, you'll have to be reborn one more time. A non-returner means this is your last time. And then an arhat is one who just, an enlightened being who's transcend them all. And the, the five to be cultivated here, which is something I, I didn't remember seeing before, uh, we cultivate faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The five bonds are greed, hatred, delusion, false view, and conceit. The five bonds are often called the five poisons instead of the three poisons. Um, and then they also talk about this. You've probably heard this, the fiery iron ball that you have to swallow. And it sounds, oh, that sounds terrible. It's one of the hell realms that they talk about. I'm, gonna, I'm just checking my numbers while we're, I'm talking here. Make sure I get everything to the 369 to 376. Um, and uh, Karma, would you like to read 369 through 376? So yeah, the, the iron ball is one of the hell realms that you have to keep swallowing this iron ball, and this fiery iron ball and, and suffer from it immensely. Karma? Bhikkhu, bail out this boat. Emptied, it will move quickly for you. Cutting off passion and aversion, you will go to Nirvana. Cut off the five lower fetters. Let go of the five higher fetters. Above all, cultivate the five faculties. A bhikkhu who surmounts five attachments is called someone who has crossed the flood. Bhikkhu, be absorbed in meditation. Don't be negligent. Don't let your mind whirl about in sensual desire. Don't be negligent and swallow a molten iron ball. And then being burnt, cry out, this is suffering. There is no meditative absorption for one without insight. There is no insight for one without meditative absorption. With both, one is close to nirvana. 
for a bhikkhu with a peaceful mind who enters an emptying dwell, empty dwelling and clearly sees the true dharma, there is superhuman joy. Fully knowing the arising and passing of the khandas, khandas. one attains joy and delight. For those who know this is the deathless. The starting point for an insightful bhikkhu is guarding the senses, contentment, restraint according to the monastic rules, and associating with good spiritual friends who live purely and untiringly. If one is friendly by habit and skillful in conduct, one will have much delight and bring an end to suffering. Hallelujah. Oops. I think that's the last one. Yeah. I think you're right. Sorry. Guru. <laughs> And I wanted to look at some of these. Um, oh, so anyways, we start with this bhikkhu bail out the boats. And I think the analogy most of us use is the uh, having a backpack full of rocks, right? Everybody knows that one. And that through spiritual practice, you realize that you can set the, or the rock sack, as the UK like to say, you can set it down and be freed from it. And this is the same thing. Bail out your boat to make it lighter and you can... Pass on to Nirvana. Um, and I just wanted to look through some of the terminology. We talked about that one already. Um, here, be absorbed in meditation. Don't be negligent. Uh, let me get to the next one. Here it is. There is no meditative absorption for one without insight. There's no insight without meditation absorption. And um, so... This brings up an interesting point that with with some people who favor calm abiding meditation just to, to, to uh, stabilize the mind, some people liking insight meditation, there's always a kind of a push and pull which one is better. But the idea is that they they say that they lead, they both lead to each other, that if you practice calm abiding long enough, it naturally leads to insight meditation. If you practice insight meditation long enough, you'll, you'll experience calm abiding. It's like a big circle that kind of goes around. So I thought that that was cool to see that in, in here. And also the, uh, the strong emphasis on meditation. Um, oh, I like some of these terms. We had a, in, in the last verses, we had a delight higher than all human delights. Doesn't that sound like something we all want? I want to know what that delight is, right? They talk about that some of the highest stages of meditation are the highest pleasures that are possible for human beings, uh, even past um, sensual or sexual bliss, that these, these qualities are there. And here we have this superhuman joy that's another one i want to experience huh clearly for those who develop right view there because that's the dharma right that's true dharma for those who develop right view there is a superhuman joy so you know our our group we love to talk about joy we like to point it out whenever we see it i think that it's a lot more in the scriptures than we give it credit for but this is the first time I heard of any of them called superhuman joy. So I thought that was a really, that was a great translation. Um, 373, huh? Let's see the translation for others. 
uh, or uh, so Buddha Rakita says, a delight that transcends all human delights. And, uh, and Ginshupa says, his joy transcends all mortal joy. Isn't that great? So there's the mortal joy known by all people, but this transcends all levels of that. So I love the language of this. Um, here we talk about the khandas, that those are the aggregates when we when we pass beyond those. And then uh, the deathless is the enlightened state, which we've had numerous times. Guarding this is nice advice for the bhikkhu to guard your senses, to be content, right? Can content and you remember skillful living series, um, happiness, our second chapter, and we we assert that what we mean in Buddhism is happiness. We really mean is contentment. It's nice to see it here as one of the main things, uh, main advice for achieving enlightenment. Restraining, uh, restraint according to the monastic rules, following our training, and associating with good spiritual friends, sangha, right? Which is what we very much uh, emphasize here. Um, and being friendly as a habit, skillful in conduct, when we'll have much delight and bring an end to suffering. Oh, that's just so pretty, isn't it? Okay, let's move on to the next part. I think we have a couple single verses here. Uh, Karma, would you like to read 377 only? As the jasmine falls, it withers its withered flowers. Let monks abandon all attachment and hatred. Thank you, that's pretty. And Jennifer, 377. Just as the jasmine creeper sheds its withered flowers, even so, O monks, should you totally shed lust and hatred. Thank you. And Tom, 377. As jasmine sheds its withered flowers, so pickers shed passion and aversion. And see, here again, we they use the word passion, but look at how it's defined. Here it's talking about passion as being lust, here they're talking about passion being attachment. So I think most of the time passion in Buddhism is seen as a negative passion, an obsessive emotion, right? Yeah. Um, can we, Tom, can you read 378 to 380? Perfectly serene, the quiet body, quiet speech, and quiet mind. The monk rejects all the attractions of the world and thus is called a man of peace. Rise yourself by your own efforts. Watch yourself and guard yourself. The monk who acts with mindfulness truly acts in happiness. You are your own protector. You are your own refuge. Therefore, control yourself as a merchant controls a spirited horse. Oh, that's pretty. Jennifer, 378 through 380. The monk who is calm in body, calm in speech, calm in thought, well composed, less spewn out worldliness, he truly is called serene. By oneself, one must censure oneself and scrutinize oneself. The self-guarded and mindful monk will always live in happiness. 
One is one's own protector. One is one's own refuge. Therefore, one should control oneself, even as a traitor controls a noble steed. Thank you. Karma 378 through 380. Peaceful in body and peaceful in speech, the bhikkhu, peaceful and well-concentrated, who has rejected the world's bait, is called one at peace. Admonish yourself, control yourself, O bhikkhu, self-guarded and mindful. You will live happily. One self indeed is one's own protector. One does indeed make one's own destiny. Therefore, control yourself as a merchant does a fine horse. Thank you. Beautiful job. I like the uh, phrase, the world's bait. He has rejected the world's bait. And Gil Franzdale gives kind of elaborate uh, uh, explanation for it. But to me, it seems very clear that it's bait. It's like fishing, right? You have that piece of bait on the end of the hook to attract you and to catch you. Um, one of my complaints in the uh, Christian scriptures was always, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jesus, love, uh, love the teachings, um, shaped my life in many ways. But that idea that send people out as fishermen of men, I always thought, now wait a second, isn't fishing, the, you, you trick a fish to, to catch it and kill it. Maybe that's not the greatest example of going out and to be fishers of men. It's like, we don't want to trick them. And, uh, anyways, I just think this is so pretty, huh? Karma, would you like to read 381? The monk who is full of joy, who has clear vision of the Buddha's teachings, whose karmic propensities have been stilled, obtains the highest happiness of peace. Uh, karmic propensities are your karmic results, are your karmic habits that you're not acting through free will, that you're running on autopilot, that you have habits that you wish you didn't, um, and that they keep surfacing. So it's like being free of all those habitual patterns, right? Um, we have Jennifer for 381 right here. Full of joy, full of faith in the teaching of the Buddha, the monk attains the peaceful state, the bliss of cessation of conditioned things. Beautifully read. And we have, um, I, I feel lost all of a sudden, 381. I have a lot of juggling to do. Tom, can you read 381? Vicky filled with delight and pleased with the Buddhist teachings attains happiness, the stilling of formations, the state of peace. Oh, that is so pretty. And again, the stilling of formations, those are mental formations, one of the, the fourth of the five aggregates. And in a sense, that's, the, that's the, the mind. When we talk about that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have an identity or a self, um, we're not the mind, and the mind kind of has an agenda of its own sometimes. And that's what that formation thing is. When we still that, we really gain control over the mind and body. That's where we're in a state of peace. Tom, this is the last verse of this chapter. Can you read it for us? A monk, however young, who strives in the Buddhist teachings, 
is like the moon emerging from the clouds and lighting up the world. Oh, that's so pretty. And Jennifer, 382. The monk who, while young, devotes himself to the teachings of the Buddha, illuminates this world like the moon freed from the clouds. Thank you. And Karma, 382. Engaged in the Buddha's teachings, even a young bhikkhu lights up the world like the moon set free from a cloud. Oh, that's so pretty. So in Buddhism, the moon is often referred to as an awakened being, uh, where in paintings, the Buddha will often be pointing his finger towards the moon, saying that the Buddha can only point the way, the moon is liberation itself. In another analogy, they say like the sun is the Buddha, the moon are bodhisattvas who are just a bit lower than the Buddha. And so we strive for that. So the moon's often uses that symbol of liberation. So that couldn't be more pretty. And as a monastic myself, this makes me feel really nice reading this chapter. I'd like to remind everybody that we can easily switch the word bhikkhu or monk just for excellent practitioner, which is of course is all of our sangha because we are great practitioners in our sangha. Um, but I thought this was a really pretty chapter. Does anybody have any questions, comments, or insights into the work of this uh, of this week's chapter? Jennifer, could you David? talk a little bit about Jennifer? Oh, sorry. Yeah. About what sure. some of the higher states of meditation are? Okay, so um, so we have uh, so there's there's two there's two sides to to meditation. We have calm abiding on one side, which is stabilizing the mind, usually focused on the breath, and then we have insight, and insight is that active kind of contemplation meditation. So the calm abiding side is the more complex. So we start off with our regular meditation, watching the breath. Calm abiding is actually a set of nine steps with the 10th step actually being the attainment of calm abiding. So calm abiding is a practice and also an attainment. And we've talked about these before and, and, uh, and it's easy to find information on this. You wanna know more about it. But calm abiding is like, you know, the, the first step is being able to hold your attention on the breath for a certain amount of time, and it just slowly gets deeper and deeper. Once you've attained the state of calm abiding, which is also considered the state of the attainment of equanimity. So equanimity is a quality of all things being equal. And it really means there's no more pull of anxiety and laxity. Whether we know it or not, Deep in meditation, you start to see, let's say it this way, when it falls away, all of a sudden you realize how much of your life is consumed with this pushing and pulling. We never see it until it falls away. It's one of the stages of calm abiding. When it falls away, you just become like a mountain on your cushion. All of a sudden you feel like you could sit there forever. And, that, and, you, and all of a sudden for the first time, you see all this pushing and pulling that never stops. It's a tug of war between anxiety and laxity, 
in everything we do on or off the cushion. It's always present. None of us are aware of it. So when that abides, we call that equanimity, right? The equal, the center between those two things. Once you've achieved equanimity or calm abiding, then there are some other states that are called the jhana states. And most traditions don't really teach them anymore. I know just a few people that actually teach the jhanas. Uh, Tibetan tradition doesn't, doesn't teach them. They're just further, much deeper levels of meditation. They call these meditation absorptions. We heard that phrase within the uh, this chapter a few times, meditative absorptions. So depending on the school, they're laid out different for a lot of different people. Some say the four jhanas, the six jhanas, the eight jhanas. Uh, oftentimes they're divided up into the four absorptions and the four concentrations. But that's a whole another thing for a whole different class. Maybe at some point we'll dabble into it. I've never had much luck with the jhanas because um, you have to be a pretty intense meditator. And most of my friends that have reached the jhana state say a minimum of three hours straight meditation in a cushion to just reach the first one. So they, they're pretty intense to get to them. And of course, you have to be a really good, calm, abiding meditator, which I'm more of an insight meditator. So on the other side is insight. And insight is is every basically everything that's not calm abiding, everything that's not trying to stabilize the mind, developing single pointed concentration, we call insight meditation. And we also say they're active meditations, meaning we're doing stuff with our mind, right? The most obvious insight meditation is contemplation during meditation. We give you a subject like impermanence, you go into meditation, you become calm, and you start thinking about impermanence. So that's basically the layout of the two. Comprehensive? Was that helpful? David, did you have a question? Yes, thank you. Sure. And, no, I didn't, but uh, I, I would have got one comment, which is I find a lot of the Dhammapada very difficult, but as it's got, got on, uh, the sheer beauty of some of the phrasing uh, it just kind of carried me away. Uh, it really is. Uh, it really is some wonderful, wonderful poetry. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, monks get a bad rap just because people don't understand what monasticism really is. The West doesn't understand what it is, and um, and then when I run across passages like this, it really helps to remind me what a wonderful thing monasticism is, and. And just again, just excellent practitioners in general. Yeah, thank you. Would anybody else like to share anything before we wind up? And I think the next chapter is even more beautiful. This one, it's kind of nice. This one leads into the next one. Yeah. Okay, why don't we, why don't I finish up with a little bit of a conclusion here? Um, again, there wasn't much to share because I thought it was all pretty straightforward. There wasn't much commentary. What I did, I just kind of wanted to wind up a little bit on what they said. I'm going to take a drink real quick. And I thought I'd just go through some of the language. And so they're talking about uh, an excellent practitioner. 
and they talked about the qualities and some of the qualities were restrained in every aspect, filled with joy, is balanced. Isn't that nice to be balanced? Content in solitude, living in loving kindness, possessing a clear vision of the Buddha's teachings, delighting in inward development, is praised even by the gods, whose karmic propensities have been stilled, whose words are sweet, whose aim is to illuminate the Dharma. Those who live by the Dharma rejoice in the Dharma, aspire to the Dharma, and are meaningful of the Dharma, whose life is pure and undisturbed, who have transcended attachment to I, me, and mine, those never grieving at what they don't have, who have, who is never proud, vain, obsessed, or upset. <laughs> That's quite pretty. So I just put together all the great adjectives, and I thought it was nice to kind of read through them all at once. Uh, so this chapter gives, paints that picture, but then it also gives us a little bit of advice as well. And so I, I, I made a list here, and some of them were just so beautiful, I literally just copied and pasted them. So there's a few that are just right out of the verses. The advice is to let go of the weight you carry, which is all your attachments, hatred and ignorance. Be mindful and restrained in every aspect of yourself and your life. Cut away the ten fetters and cultivate the five virtues. Meditate and be vigilant. Do not let the mind delude you. Without wisdom, there's no meditation. And without meditation, there's no wisdom. An excellent practice of an excellent practitioner of peaceful mind beholds the true Dharma and his joy transcends all mortal joy. Whoever investigates the rising and passing of the aggregates and from where they arise from will obtain delight, will obtain delight and joy. Live a pure life and never be lazy. Perfect in all actions, oh, sorry, perfect in all actions, Virtue permeating all they do, the excellent practitioner has many joys and puts an end to suffering. Perfectly serene with soft and beautiful body, soft and beautiful speech, soft and beautiful mind, the excellent practitioner rejects all of the attractions of the world and thus is called a person of peace. Rouse yourself by your own efforts. Watch yourself and guard yourself. The excellent practitioner who acts with mindfulness truly acts in happiness. You are your own protector. You are your own refuge. Therefore, control yourself. One does indeed 
make one's own destiny. The excellent practitioner who is full of joy, who is clear, who has clear vision of the Buddha's teachings, whose karmic propensities have been stilled, obtains the highest happiness of peace. And lastly, for an excellent practitioner with a peaceful mind who enters an empty dwelling and clearly sees the true Dharma, there is superhuman joy. I want a taste of that. I'd like to remind everybody that the sutra teachings here are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life, transforming them from words on a page to living dharma. Tomorrow, for our Sunday teaching, we'll be engaging in another Sutra Studies class in order to finish our study of the Dharmapada, meaning tomorrow we'll be studying the last chapter, chapter 26, entitled The Brahman. Uh, we'll then take a short pause in our Sutra Studies while I travel abroad for the next few weeks. We'll be resuming our Saturday Sutra studies on Saturday, May 13th. And our new Sutra text we'll be uh, studying will be the Dharma Chaka Pavatana Sutra. I, uh, I battle with, with, a, with Pali uh, language. It's not easy. I got Tibetan and Sanskrit down, but I can't seem to get Pali down. The Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutra, which is actually translated as the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dharma Sutra. And it's uh, it includes the Buddha's first teachings like the Four Noble Truths, but it's by far my favorite of all the sutras. It's beautiful, it's powerful, and I believe it's life transforming. So with that said, let's end today's class with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks everybody for coming. Remember that SBT was created for one purpose and one purpose only, to support you, the practitioner. I'll see everybody tomorrow for our last sutra class on the Dhammapada. Thanks to our readers, you did a wonderful job. Bye-bye, everybody. I thank you. See you tomorrow. You're bye. welcome. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.